Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. Colin D. Young. He is Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Minnesota, and uh, we've already had an interview. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of this one. It was basically on the big five personality traits and their 10 aspects. And today we're going to expand a little bit more on that and talk um, a lot about psychopathology and also how neuro neuroscience might relate to personality psychology in some ways. So Dr. De Young, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to everyone. Thanks, Ricardo. It's nice to be here. Okay, so talking about uh, psychopathology then, of course, uh, I mean, uh, over the years on the show, I've touched on this issue when it comes to, for example, how psychopathology is defined in psychiatry and the classification system in psychiatry. And there are many different sorts of critiques out there. Some of them come from people who have worked on the DSM themselves, for example. There are critics from sociologists, from, uh, I mean, all sorts of people working on these issues. So, but, but from your standpoint, since you come mainly from the position of, or from a point of view of neuroscience and personality psychology, uh, do you agree that there are some issues with the way um, psychopathology is defined in psychiatry or not? Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody hates the DSM, <laughs> uh, except maybe psychiatrists, but I think even uh, even a fair number of psychiatrists uh, hate the DSM. Um, there are, yeah, there are many problems with the DSM. It's clearly not uh, scientifically valid as a classification system. Um, there's very clear evidence at this point that the vast majority of um, mental health problems or mental disorders are not uh, these kinds of categorical entities that the DSM uh, wants them to be, right? In other words, where there's one type of people who have this disorder and everybody else is categorically distinct. Uh, that's just not the way it works. Instead, we know that uh, mental health problems are on a continuum with uh, normal personality variation, uh, so that, um, you know, some people, you know, for example, there are people who are uh, relatively anxious, um, a bit depressive. Uh, from a big five standpoint, we could say they're high in neuroticism, uh, but we, they wouldn't necessarily get a diagnosis of uh, mental disorder. But if they were just a little bit higher in uh, these, you know, anxiety and depression, or if they had the same levels of anxiety and depression, but something went wrong in their lives and they were having some trouble, then they might get a diagnosis. Uh, so um, I guess the way that the easiest way to think about this is that uh, psychiatry wants to treat mental health problems as if they were like infectious diseases, right? It's like either you have COVID or you don't, right? You either have the, you know, the organism that is infecting you, uh, the bacteria or, uh, or sorry, the virus, uh, or you don't have it. Uh, whereas in fact, mental health problems are much more like blood pressure, where there's uh, a continuum. We know it's a continuous measure. Um, and when we get to a certain level, as blood pressure gets higher and higher, then we know it becomes more and more risky. 
but we also know that when there is a number chosen, like, you know, let's say if you have a blood pressure of 140 over 100, then suddenly we say that you have hypertension, right? You get a diagnosis of this, uh, of this health problem. But no doctor thinks that there's actually something um, magical about 140 versus 139 that puts people into some kind of different category. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the same situation with mental health problems, and yet we treat it as if there's something magical about getting this diagnosis that suddenly moves you into a separate kind of category of person. And uh, we often assume that there's this kind of essentialization of mental health problems, uh, suggesting that now, there's something that you have, you always have, you might treat it, you might uh, control it with medication, you might get better, but it's some, somehow, somewhere, you're still the person who is, you know, who has major depression or is a schizophrenic uh, or who has ADHD, right? So for, what, for various reasons, we treat mental health problems uh, very differently than we treat many physical health problems. Uh, and part of doing that is actually distorting reality. Mm -hmm. uh, and when it comes to the criteria people point to or use to classify something as psychopathology or not, do you think that uh, the simple fact of, uh, or just by simply finding that something has, has some sort of statistical deviance associated with it, that would be enough to classify it as psychopathology? Uh, no, I, I certainly don't think so. Uh, this gets into a big and tricky topic, uh, which is not only how do you find, how do you define psychopathology, mm -hmm. but how do you define, you know, all forms of pathology? Yeah. Uh, that is a complicated issue. It's a complicated philosophical issue. You know, people have been debating it for a long time and there are different perspectives on it. And, uh, one perspective does rely on statistical deviance, as you say, right? The idea that um, if you get far enough away from normal behavior, uh, especially if it's in a direction that causes problems of some kind, uh, then you are uh, essentially you know, pathological, right? So mm -hmm. in other words, merely moving away from the norm, from the average is enough to consider you pathological. Um, and uh, well, I don't think that's a good way to define psychopathology. Uh, and that's partly, I think, coming out of a background in, uh, in personality psychology that uh, people can have very extreme uh, personalities and that doesn't inherently make them pathological. And it makes them weird, right? They're not, they may be rel quite unusual as a personality profile relative to most people, uh, but uh, we wouldn't want to call them pathological unless it was uh, causing them problems in some way. Um, and so uh, if you look, for example, at the DSM's general definition of, uh, of mental health uh, or mental disorder, and you look at uh, many of the specific cri criteria for specific mental disorders, they often will include that not only do you have to have some kind of set of symptoms that are sufficiently extreme, but you also have to have some degree of distress or impairment or dysfunction in your life. Uh, now, one problematic thing about the DSM from a philosophical perspective is that it doesn't actually define impairment or dysfunction or problem, right? Uh, so it's not doing a very rigorous job at providing a definition of a mental disorder, but it does often recognize the fact that we don't want to call someone uh, mentally ill 
unless their peculiarities, their unusual uh, features, their unusual experiences or behaviors are actually causing some kind of disruption in their lives. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and what about uh, brain disease? I mean, how do you look at the relationship between brain disease and uh, psychopathology? Because you also have some background in neuroscience. Uh, I mean, uh, 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 we could get perhaps into a, a broader philosophical discussion surrounding, of course, the relationship between the mind and the, or what occurs in the brain and the mind and all of that. But let's leave that aside here. But uh, I mean, uh, how do you look at the relationship between brain disease and psychopathology yeah. well let's let's not leave it aside entirely let's at least okay. say something relatively straightforward like yeah. uh, from a scientific perspective i think we can endorse you know, monism uh there's not like a separate soul or mind that's distinct from the physical world so yeah. uh you know i've always liked the adage that the uh, mind is what the brain does right so uh you know, we have, uh, as individual organisms, we are able to model our own processing and, you know, consciousness is perhaps hard to figure out from a scientific perspective. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that uh, what is going on in the mind is a product of what the brain is doing. Uh, and so uh, the way that I see this is that, I guess this is kind of, a, this is perhaps a subtle distinction, but Obviously, any pattern of behavior, whether it's considered to be normal or whether it's diagnosed as a disorder, whether it's causing somebody you know, suffering or severe problems, uh, is always a product of the brain, right? So the brain is always involved in any kind of mental health problem. Uh, but even having said that, uh, I think that it's actually problematic to consider psychopathology to be brain disease. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that's a very popular way of thinking about it in terms of, uh, you know, like the NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, a lot of scientists are very uh, fond of the idea that mental disorders are brain diseases. And, you know, I think there are some potentially good things about that perspective. I think understanding uh, the degree to which people's brains are uh, working in unusual ways and are uh, involved in uh, things like, you know, addiction, for example, it can be, it can reduce the stigma that is attached to mental health problems. And if somebody understands that uh, a drug addiction is not just some kind of moral failing, but actually involves the ways in which these substances hijacks the brain's reward system and alter the brain in ways that make it very difficult for people to make uh, good decisions and to avoid the behaviors associated with addiction, uh, that can be very you know, useful in terms of you know, public beliefs and judgments about uh, mental health problems. Uh, but at the same time, I think it actually probably uh, pushes us away from doing research that would actually be the most effective in terms of helping people to overcome mental health problems. Uh, and, and here's why that is. So we, mm -hmm. this goes back to what we were talking earlier about this question of statistical deviance, yeah. right? So the way that I, so, and I, I've published a couple of papers now. In fact, we have a paper that's just out uh, in the last couple of months 
in a journal uh, called the Journal of Psychopathology and Clinical Science. Uh, that that's, used to be the Journal of Abnormal Psychology. They recently changed the name, um, again, for reasons around stigma, right? The idea is that people associate the term of abnormal with something that is, uh, that is morally judgmental, uh, and so it was changed to psychopathology and clinical science. Uh, but uh, so in that paper, we are arguing uh, exactly against these two different conceptions of mental health uh, or mental illness that you've brought up, uh, that it is uh, statistical deviance and that it is brain disease. Uh, and instead of those perspectives, we take a perspective uh, that mental illness is best conceived as cybernetic dysfunction. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can talk a bit more about cybernetics, but mm-hmm. uh, basically the idea is that uh, cybernetics is the study of the principles that govern goal-directed systems. So organisms pursue goals that allow them to survive and reproduce, and in the case of humans, to do many other things as well. Uh, and the idea is that we should say that somebody has a mental illness uh, when they are persistently unable to pursue their goals effectively, uh, you know, including their various basic needs, uh, and, in, uh, and able to do the things that they need and want to do in life, um, and also that they're unable to then adapt and change their you know, various strategies or goals in order to get back on track. So when that happens, when people kind of go off the rails and can't get back onto them, as it were, uh, then that is, I think, the sensible point at which to say that somebody has a mental illness, uh, not merely because they have uh, unusual behavioral patterns or experiences, even if those patterns of behavior and experience are uh, you know, cla- normally classified as symptoms. Uh, and the same principle basically ap- applies to studies of the brain, that there's this tendency to say, okay, so we've got a measure of anxiety, let's say, uh, and then we put people in the brain scanner and we find that people who are high in anxiety have brains that function in this particular way. Well, then there's a tendency to leap to saying that that pattern of brain function is pathological in some way, or is, uh, you know, essentially inherently a, a dysfunction in the brain because it's associated with high levels of anxiety, and we associate we we describe anxiety as a symptom of mental illness. Uh, right. I, I really think that that whole paradigm is very misguided. So. Uh, there are, there's a normal range of anxiety in people. Some people who have a lot of anxiety, uh, you know, they might prefer if they were less anxious, but perhaps they've developed good coping strategies. They accept that that's part of their personality and they know how to deal with it. Uh, and uh, we wouldn't necessarily want to call them mentally ill in le- if they are uh, leading normal lives and being able to accomplish the things that they want to and need to in life. Uh, and so, the reason that we shouldn't say that mental illness is brain disease is that I don't think that there, there are very, very few illnesses in which we're going to see a particular pattern of brain function, and that by itself would allow us to say that this person has a disorder. Uh, there are a few exceptions to this. Uh, for example, Alzheimer's disease is pretty clearly linked to specific forms of uh, pathology in the brain. So there's a neurological problem that's clearly identifiable uh, that is then what causes the symptoms that we describe as Alzheimer's. Uh, But, you know, in that case, like that's in some ways it's a nice example because if those neurological problems are not causing the person to have uh, cognitive dysfunction and memory problems, 
then we don't say that they have Alzheimer's yet. They might have something, you know, we might say, okay, there's clearly this brain pathology developing. It's likely to cause Alzheimer's. It's a risk for Alzheimer's, uh, but it's not Alzheimer's yet. And the reason it's not Alzheimer's yet is precisely that there's not yet psychological dysfunction or cybernetic dysfunction, right? It's not yet interfering with the person's ability to uh, pursue their goals and function in life. Uh, so, you know, in both cases, whether we're thinking about this as, you know, how severe do your symptoms have to be or uh, how severe does this pattern of brain function have to be, the issue is that there's no level of severity that by itself warrants a diagnosis. Uh, you know, and I think that's where a lot of the scientific approach to research, uh, scientific as well as clinical approaches to uh, mental illness are um, a bit misguided right now. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll get into more into cybernetics in a second, uh, but before that, uh, earlier when I asked you about how psychopathology is defined in psychiatry and I guess also clinical psychology, um, you mentioned that many people nowadays no longer think that um, we should think about mental disorders as discrete categories. So. If not discrete categories, then how should we think about them? Should we think about them as dimensions, for example? And what would that mean exactly? Yes, so uh, the dimensional approach to psychopathology and mental illness is certainly what is replacing the categorical idea uh, from a scientific perspective. And there's a ton of good evidence for that. Uh, I'm part of a consortium of uh, mostly clinical psychologists, a few psychiatrists, a couple of personality psychologists like me, uh, that is called the uh, Hierarchical Taxonomy of Psychopathology Consortium, uh, HITOP for short. Um, and so the idea behind HITOP is to take all of the research that's been done on the dimensional nature of psychopathology uh, and to use that in an empirically driven way to understand how different symptoms of mental health problems tend to cluster together. And so when we say it's a, a, a taxonomy um, of psychopathology, it's not a classification of people. So the DSM tries to classify people into these different boxes, right? It's like you've got major depressive disorder, you've got schizophrenia, you've got schizoaffective disorder, uh, and we want people generally to fit in, in one box. Of course, one of the obvious problems with the DSM is that many people go in you know, multiple boxes, right? So it's very common for people to get multiple diagnoses. Uh, but there are a number of features of the DSM that are actually supposed to discourage uh, people from getting multiple diagnoses. So for example, if you get a diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder, you can't get a diagnosis of schizophrenia, right? They're supposed to be uh, mutually exclusive. Uh, but the fact that they have to go to all these lengths to carve these things up and schizoaffective disorder was essentially created because there were too many people who shared features of both uh, bipolar disorder, you know, problems with mania and depression, um, and people with uh, psychosis who would be classified as schizophrenia. Uh, there are a lot of people with features of both. And so rather than just saying, okay, we've got uh, one set of problems related to psychosis, we could, which we could think of as more or less severe on a dimension, one set related to uh, you know, depression, one set related to mania. Uh, instead, they've attempted to create these, uh, these distinct categories. But 
the dimensional approach is actually much closer to what the uh, empirical evidence suggests is true in nature. Right? So there aren't a, there isn't a distinct category of people who have schizophrenia and a category of people who have schizoaffective disorder. What there are are problems with psychosis, which involves hallucination and delusion, uh, and that can be more or less severe. And then there are problems with, um, with, with mood, and that can be more or less severe. Um, and so thinking about these things dimensionally allows us to say that then we have, a, you know, for every person, we can give them a profile uh, of all of these different symptoms. And the taxonomy in HITOP is basically uh, showing which of these symptoms tend to appear together in the same people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so, you know, a dimension just means that, you know, it's like blood pressure, right? You can have low blood pressure, you can have high blood pressure. Uh, so similarly if, we, similarly, if we take something like psychosis, you can have uh, relatively low levels of hallucinations and delusions, or you can have high levels. Uh, and one of the interesting things, you know, people often think of psychosis as one of the most severe mental health problems. And of course, it is a severe mental health problem when it is disrupting people's lives. Uh, but psychotic-like experiences, having strange perceptual experiences that might count as a minor hallucination or, you know, hearing uh, hearing voices. I mean, many people hear voices talking to themselves in their own heads, and this doesn't indicate any kind of mental illness at all. In fact, it's just a natural uh, offshoot of the fact that what the brain does is that it simulates uh, the world that we experience. It tries to, you know, basically predict and model the world that we encounter. And one of the most important things that we encounter is other people. And we're very able to think about, like, what is that person thinking? What is that person going to say? So in other words, we basically run little simulations of other human beings in our brains all the time. Uh, So it's hardly surprising that sometimes those simulations run uh, even when we didn't, you know, voluntarily ask them to. Um, You know, I know many people who are writers who say they just, you know, they hear conversations in their head and that's part of how they write books. You know, it it gives them ideas. But there's no sense in thinking that that's some kind of mental disorder. That's actually the way the brain is supposed to work. Uh, So uh, many people have, you know, very mild versions of what are severe problems become full-blown hallucinations and delusions. Uh, And there's no clear, uh, there's no clear dividing line that says like, how severe does that have to get before you have a disorder? In fact, what we need to be paying attention to is when does this interfere with your life? When does this cause you, you know, serious distress and impairment? When does it prevent you from being able to pursue your goals effectively? Um, You know, there's an example that I like to use that's along these lines with psychosis, which is a study that uh, looked at a group of of patients who are diagnosed with some kind of psychotic disorder, uh, all of whom had uh, auditory hallucinations. Auditory hallucinations are the most common kind of hallucination, and I think that's precisely because we are constantly simulating other people in our brains. Um, and uh, it also looked at a group of people who were, who were considered to be healthy, who did not have any diagnosis, uh, who not, did not meet the criteria for any diagnosis, um, but they also had daily auditory hallucinations. Uh, and those people were psychics, right? So they're people who uh, claim that they are able to communicate with, uh, you know, other spiritual realms. And uh, part of that is that they're having uh, auditory hallucinations, right? They're hearing voices. And so, you know, those clearly qualify as hallucinations and delusions, uh, but they're not 
schizophrenic, right? They're not psychotic. They don't get a diagnosis because their lives are functional. You know, maybe they're actually employed, working as a psychic, making money off of this, uh, off of this unusual personality profile, uh, or at the very least, it's not interfering, you know, with the whatever work they do in their daily lives and their relationships. Uh, and the, the fascinating thing about this was comparing these two groups. If you looked at the measurement of, uh, of hallucinations that would normally be used to, cla uh, to clarify or characterize uh, mental disorder, they were equal. They had no significant difference in terms of the amount of audit and severity of auditor auditory hallucination that they had. Uh, so, you know, that right there shows you that even with some of these symptoms that we think of as being particularly severe, uh, statistical deviance by itself should not and cannot be used to identify psych psychopathology or, uh, or mental disorder. But, you know, I, I think it's important to imagine then what happens uh, when that person has some problem that develops in their lives, like maybe you know, a, a loved one dies or they, uh, you know, they lose their business or they get fired from work or, you know, whatever happens. Uh, some kind of, one of these sort of typical traumatic events that we know can trigger episodes of depression or anxiety for people. Yeah. Uh, and so let's say this person then develops some level of anxiety and depression and they go to a, a, you know, a mental health clinician for help. They go to a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist and they're talking about what's happened to them and they're talking about their anxiety and their depression. And then it happens to come up in conversation that they have daily auditory hallucinations and that they're communicating with spirits. What is going to happen there? Well, most likely they're going to get a diagnosis of a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia, right? Because they have a mental, they clearly have a mental health problem. Uh, and they also clearly have hallucinations and delusions. You put those th two things together and in the logic of the DSM, uh, they're very likely to end up with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, even though that is, uh, really the wrong diagnosis, right? Their problems are not coming from their hallucinations and delusions. Those have been a well-integrated and healthy part of their lives previously. Uh, their problems are coming from anxiety and depression in response to, you know, whatever these kinds of stressful events in their lives have been. Uh, and so, you know, I, one of the things that, that does is that it illustrates the way in which the categorical diagnostic systems can be, uh, can be stigmatizing, can be essentializing, uh, and, you know, basically can lead to the mistreatment of people's problems. Because if you start treating somebody for uh, schizophrenia when that's not their problem, that leads to all kinds of problems on its own, right? Those are a lot of really uh, dramatic uh, medical interventions, uh, psychopharmacological mm -hmm. interventions. Um, and then there's, of course, just the stigma of being labeled as a schizophrenic, right? So, uh, the dimensional approach instead says that for every person, uh, there are a number of different possible symptoms, and we can describe people in terms of their profile of symptoms. And it's very much like a personality profile. Right? This is why there's this kind of natural alliance between personality psychology and clinical psychology mm -hmm. that is becoming more and more uh, evident, more and more well-developed uh, scientifically, um, because it's very clear now empirically that these dimensions of psychopathology. So if you take all of these different symptoms that people have and you look to see which ones tend to vary together, you get a set of, you know, a relatively small number of dimensions that corresponds very closely to the kind of dimensions that you get in a personality like the big five. 
So, uh, for example, you get a, an internalizing spectrum of psychopathology, as it's called. Uh, and that spectrum involves uh, depression and anxiety, uh, uh, eating disorders to some extent, things that, are, uh, that involve around uh, these kinds of emotional problems uh, that are directed uh, inward, right? That's why it's called internalizing. The original idea was to distinguish problems that people have that you know, make them feel bad and are expressed sort of inwardly versus problems that are called externalizing, which end up in behaviors that cause problems for other people like antisocial behavior, impulsivity, uh, drug problems. So there's this basic distinction that's been made between internalizing problems and externalizing problems. Um, but that distinction is made not just conceptually, but actually based on empirical patterns of the ways in which symptoms tend to co-occur within people. So somebody who has problems with depression and anxiety is more likely to have problems with uh, eating dysfunction, eating disorder, than somebody who has problems with you know, antisocial behavior and impulsivity. Just empirically, that's the way that those things tend to go together. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the high top system basically takes all these specific symptoms and uh, creates this hierarchical taxonomy, which means there are levels. So just mm -hmm. like in personality where you have the big five and then you have um, more narrow sub-factors under the big five and then many more specific facets of personality below that, we can do exactly the same thing with psychopathology where we have these uh, spectra and in the high top model there are currently six of these uh, and then below that there are sort of sub-factors and below that there are these more specific symptoms. And it happens that the structure of these two domains, a measurement of normal personality and uh, you know, measurement of people's symptoms of mental illness are very similar. Uh, not necessarily perfectly identical, but similar enough that we know that a lot of these dimensions are actually just the same dimension, but one focused more on the sort of maladaptive or risky expressions of these behaviors and one focused on the more uh, well, on the less problematic expression in normal personality. Uh, so, you know, instead of saying this person has, uh, you know, schizophrenia, we would say this person has uh, high levels of, uh, of thought disorder and maybe high levels of internalizing, but low levels of uh, antagonism, low levels of uh, disinhibition, mm -hmm. right? We characterize people in terms of this profile across all the major uh, spectra of, uh, of symptoms and of mental health problems, rather than trying to put them in a specific category. So, and within this hierarchical taxonomy of psychopathology you are talking about there, um, how do you distinguish between traits and symptoms? Is that something that you are able to do? Yes, that's something that uh, we've talked a lot about in the consortium and uh, I actually published a, uh, I and many of the other people in the consortium, but I was the first author on it, uh, published an article that's basically a, a working position uh, on the distinction between traits and symptoms in high top. And our conclusion is fundamentally that the only real difference between a trait and a symptom is whether we're talking about it in terms of its appearance within a limited time or not. Uh, in other words, if you have something that is called a symptom, uh, it is a trait if it is sufficiently long-lasting. Uh, and you know the whole the whole concept of the symptom is potentially problematic because uh, people often think of something that's a symptom as inherently a manifestation of disease. Mm -hmm. And so, if it's a symptom, it means you're diseased. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's actually not 
what symptom means in, uh, in, in mental health and in, in psychopathology. And if you look at the text of the DSM, even in the DSM, a symptom does not mean that you have a mental disorder. The DSM is very clear to say that uh, people can have some of these symptoms without having a disorder. Uh, and that's for the, exactly the reasons that I was talking about earlier around the problems with statistical deviance. Um, so the DSM doesn't explicitly acknowledge this, but there are these kind of implicit tensions within it, right? So it uses statistical deviance because it says, if you have a certain number of symptoms, that's evidence of a disorder. Um, but then it also has some qualifiers like, oh, but not, not necessarily a disorder unless you also have uh, impairment or dysfunction or distress of some kind, right? So th that tension is evident in the DSM itself. Um, and so the way I would think about this is that rather than thinking about a symptom as inherently indicative of disease, uh, it's better to think about symptoms as, uh, as markers of risk, right? So the more symptoms you have, the more likely it is that you have uh, psychopathology, right? That you have mental illness, um, but it's not definite until we also see these patterns of dysfunction that we want to describe in terms of cybernetic dysfunction. Um, and uh, so there I should be clear that, so the, the cybernetic dysfunction theory, uh, that's my theory uh, uh, working in collaboration with Bob Kruger. Um, Bob Kruger and I are also both part of HITOP. He's one of the founders of HITOP, uh, but the cybernetic theory is not officially endorsed by HITOP, right? So I've got these sort of, you know, two different hats. It's like, I'm a member of HITOP. We're trying to work on this system that everybody can agree on that could uh, essentially replace the DSM as a way to describe and characterize uh, mental health problems. And then separately from that, in my work as a scientist and a theorist, I'm developing this theory of cybernetic dysfunction. Uh, but so within HITOP, the position basically is that any one of these symptom dimensions can be conceived and measured as both uh, a set of traits uh, and a set of symptoms. And when it's a trait, that's when we ask somebody about what they're like in general. Is this the way that you typically are? Is it, what's your general disposition? Are you the kind of person who is prone to uh, you know, anxiety and uh, depressive emotion in general? Um, when we ask them like in the last month, uh, how much experience of anxiety and depression have you had, then we're talking about symptoms. Um, but that's really the only clear difference that we were able to come to because of the fact that none of these things are inherently indicative of uh, disease or disorder or illness. Uh, so, uh, you know, basically, if you have a persistent symptom, that's part of your personality because it's there over time, then that is a, that's a trait. Uh, if you have a, some kind of ex problematic uh, experience with like anxiety or uh, you know, delusion or uh, impulsivity or whatever it is in some limited period of time, that is a symptom without being a trait. So symptoms can be traits if they're long lasting or they can be just temporary you know, episodic symptoms if they are uh, relatively short and inconsistent with the rest of the person's personality. Uh, and that's really the only clear distinction that can be drawn. But it's important then to remember that merely having symptoms is not indicative of disease. So we really have to think about three different things, right? We have to think about uh, personality traits, uh, symptoms, and then uh, dysfunction or disorder as a separate entity. Uh, and that's one of the things that I'm really pushing with the cybernetic theory, which is this idea we need to clearly separate 
the descriptions of people's traits and symptoms from the uh, diagnosis as having some kind of, uh, of mental disorder. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, just before we move on to cybernetics again, you've already talked a little bit about that earlier and in our previous interview toward the end, we also talked a little bit about cybernetics. But just before that, I would also, I would just uh, like to ask you a follow-up uh, regarding something that you said earlier when, when you were talking about high top and when I asked you about thinking about psychopathology uh, through a dimensional perspective in terms instead of a categorical perspective let's say uh, at a certain point there you mentioned briefly that um, I, I mean since we're also talking about clinical practice here and not just theory that someone uh, might go to therapy and they might get misdiagnosed for some reason and then particularly if they get uh, pharmacological therapy or drug therapy, uh, I mean, that might lead down the line if they are misdiagnosed to some uh, issue. So, uh, I mean, particularly because I guess that here in this instance, we're also interested in trying to understand the etiology behind uh, mental disorder. Uh, is there a risk? Do you think that there's a risk if people get misdiagnosed of iatrogenic effects that is down the line developing some sort of mental condition due to being exposed to some sort of uh, therapy that shouldn't have been done or provided? Yeah, I think that there are a number of risks. Um, there are risks from uh, medications, right? So uh, most uh, pharmacological treatments are using drugs that we where we don't fully understand their action. They tend to have many side effects. Uh, you know, I, in some ways, I think that there there are not side effects. There are just effects that are desired versus effects that are undesired. Right. So, uh, you know, we use, for example, a lot of serotonergic drugs like SSRIs to treat depression uh, or anxiety because they are used for both. In fact, they work for uh, the whole internalizing spectrum, right? This is one of the reasons that it makes more sense to think in this kind of hierarchical taxonomy of these different dimensions uh, than in terms of discrete disorders, because many treatments actually work for multiple disorders and they tend to work in ways that uh, correspond to the ways that these things are grouped in this taxonomy into broader dimensions. So if you have internalizing problems, you can be treated with SSRIs. Uh, but one of the things that we know very well is that those do not work for everyone. In fact, they maybe they only work for half of the people who take them, um, you know, if that. And so there are these interesting reviews that suggest that uh, if you look overall, there is actually very little evidence of clinical efficacy for many of the drug treatments that we use. Um, and yet, obviously, they clearly are very helpful for some people. Right? Mm -hmm. So that part of the problem there is that we understand so little about the underlying causes of people's problems. So some people may be anxious and depressed because of a particular type of uh, risky pattern of brain functioning that they have that can be uh, improved by giving them an SSRI. Other people are anxious and depressed for very different reasons, and so giving them that drug is not helpful at all and may end up actually uh, being, uh, being harmful. Uh, and uh, but so not only can people be harmed by uh, by the drugs that we use to treat them, uh, they can also be harmed simply by their uh, sort of the treatment by 
the, uh, the, the medical system and uh, by the uh, stigma that comes along, uh, stigma and restrictions and whatever else that might come along with having a diagnosis. Yep. Uh, so there's uh, a great um, description, uh, great is one way to put it, as uh, sort of terrifying and, uh, and horrible is another way of putting it, uh, by uh, Eleanor Longden, who is an English woman uh, who, when she was uh, in university, I think it was when she was in the university, uh, started hearing voices. Um, and, you know, and as we've already established, many, many people hear voices, many healthy people hear voices. Uh, and uh, she went through an incredibly bad experience that was bad largely because as soon as she told somebody that she was hearing voices and that they were negative and critical, uh, that she was diagnosed with schizophrenia and then a lot of really uh, awful interactions with the whole uh, you know, medical system and various institutions ensued. Um, and uh, since you know, recovering from that encounter with the medical system, she has been a really uh, amazing advocate for understanding the normality, as it were, of hearing voices, right? It's not, uh, it's not normal in the sense that it's maybe the average experience, but it's normal in the sense that it's perfectly within the range of people's personalities uh, and that it does not necessarily indicate any kind of mental health problem. Now, uh, as with personality, you can look at any of these dimensions and say, well, uh, having higher or lower levels provides a greater risk for mental health problems. So yes, if you're somebody who hears voices, that just means statistically that you are more likely to end up with a psychotic problem at some point in your life, but there's no guarantee that you will, right? It's not, the symptoms themselves are merely indicative of risk. They're not indicative of disease. That's sort of my, you know, my core message, I guess. Um, and, you know, so yes, I think there are definite risks to misdiagnosis and, you know, something that it might be good to talk about at this point is just how HITOP thinks about diagnosis uh, okay. proceeding, like alternative ways of diagnosing. And we can think about that both in terms of HITOP and in terms of the cybernetic theory. Uh, so uh, from HITOP's perspective, uh, actually one of the interesting things about what's going on in HITOP right now and the things that we're working on as a consortium is that uh, we're currently trying to basically figure out how best to assess uh, measure and uh, judge people's levels of dysfunction that might be uh, used in conjunction with these profiles of symptoms to uh, yield a diagnosis, right? So, uh, you know, in one way or another, you're going to start with the fact that somebody is having some kind of uh, problem in their lives. Um, and it's, and, and then you're going to move to basically describing them either through uh, having people fill out questionnaires, having people who know the people fill out questionnaires, having the uh, clinician do a, a structured interview that allows them to basically assess people on these different dimensions. Um, so one of the main things HITOP is doing right now is creating a measurement system to go along with the uh, descriptive scientific system of symptoms. Yeah. Uh, and so once you get these assessments, then you can say, well, this person has, you know, elevated levels of thought disorder, but the normal levels of externalizing problems, whatever. You get this whole profile uh, of different characteristics. And then that is what's going to be useful. So the goal is not to say, well, then what diagnosis do they get? Like, what category do we put them in? Because the categories don't exist, right? We know that the categories are fundamentally fictional. Uh, there are no categorical uh, mental health problems or almost no categorical mental health problems, certainly none of the ones that are usually commonly diagnosed. Uh, 
But uh, then uh, that is the diagnosis, right? The diagnosis is that you are having problems and this is your profile of symptoms. Um, and then that profile of symptoms is what is used to guide treatment. And the interesting thing about this is that this is exactly how most clinicians function already. Uh, so one of the things that people who are you know, in charge of the DSM and in charge of the American Psychiatric Association, uh, one of the things that they worry about is that this is such a dramatic change from the way that we currently do diagnosis uh, that clinicians won't know what to do with it, that they won't be able to function, that they'll, you know, everything will, everything will just fall apart in the medical system. Um, but that turns out not to be true at all. So uh, there are a number of studies already that show that clinicians actually find the dimensional approach to character, case characterization and diagnosis uh, more useful than the categorical DSM approach, uh, often easier to use, and also more consistent with the way that they already think about cases. So many clinicians refer to DSM categories only because they have to, because you have to write something down for the purposes of medical insurance. Yep. And you have to have a certain kind of diagnostic code in order to get the person into the system that will help to pay for their treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, but they don't actually find those categories to be useful. And the reasons that they're not useful are the same reasons that we find them to be non-existent from an empirical standpoint, which is that there are there's a great deal of heterogeneity. So pe very different people can fall into the same category. You can have you know, often all that's required for a categorical diagnosis is to say that you have to have more than half of this list of symptoms. Yeah. Uh, and so that means that one person can have one half and the other person can have the other half and they, over, they only overlap in one symptom and yet they get the same diagnosis and we treat them somehow as if they have the same problem. That's ridiculous. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, so clinicians generally don't really do that. Instead, what they do is to, to focus in on the specific profile of symptoms and problems that the person has and try to tailor their treatment around that particular profile. So most clinicians just from in their day-to-day -day practice are already doing something that is implicitly a lot like what HITOP is trying to do in a more formal and systematic way. Uh, and you know, so then the crucial uh, additional piece beyond having this profile of symptoms is to say, well, uh, how do we tell when somebody has a sufficiently severe problem in the first place uh, that they need some kind of intervention or treatment. Um, now, you know, one thing is that in practice, anyone who goes into a mental health uh, practitioner and says, I have a problem, is probably going to get some kind of help. They're going to get some kind of suggestion. They're not necessarily going to get a diagnosis, but they're going to get you know, some kind of suggestions or recommendations for what they might do to try to help themselves. So in some ways, we already recognize that there are these different levels of severity that require different kinds of interventions, mm -hmm. uh, and they don't always need to get a diagnosis. And you know, these dimensional approaches are basically just making that more explicit and systematic to say that there are different levels of severity. Again, the analogy is nice if we go back to blood pressure, right? So let's say that you have a blood pressure not of 140, but of 125. Then it's then what you're, you're described as having pre-hypertension, right? So, and there is a set of guidelines for what you might do to help people with their blood pressure if they have pre-hypertension, but they don't yet warrant a diagnosis of full hypertension. Uh, we, there's no reason not to have exactly the same kind of thing with mental health problems. You have a certain level of anxiety. We're going to help you in these ways. You have a higher level of anxiety. We're going to resort to these, uh, you know, more dramatic interventions potentially. Uh, and so. Uh, you know, the, the dimensional approach of diagnosis is very consistent with that. The one thing that really needs to get resolved is this question of 
uh, how do we say when somebody is dysfunctional? Um, you know, and that is where the cybernetic perspective comes in uh, from my perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I think that uh, the way in which we need to diagnose somebody is basically to uh, get a good sense of what their goals are in life. Uh, also to recognize that people's goals are not always fully conscious, right? So uh, there are things that are very basic to human nature and a goal from a cybernetic perspective is actually something that is, uh, you know, it's not just an abstract idea, it's something that's physically represented in the brain in some way. Um, and that the, essentially the system monitors whether we are uh, moving toward that goal or not and whether we've reached that goal or not. Uh, so, uh, you know, some people, you know, you can have a very abstract goal. You might say, you know, like, well, I want to be uh, a very, you know, um, honest and just person. And then so you try to figure out like, well, what are the criteria for that, right? If you have an abstract goal, then you obviously have to break it down into more specific criteria because at some level it has to get down to the level of how we actually act, right? The output of our motor systems um, or, you know, specific mental, uh, specific mental, you know, specific thoughts. So, uh, so there's this hierarchy of goals and abstract goals get uh, instantiated and carried out by more specific goals. Uh, but so we can have these relatively abstract goals that are maybe, uh, you know, a long way from uh, original evolutionary pressures. But there are also things like affiliation with other people and uh, the, you know, desire to have a certain degree of uh, rewarding experiences or not to be bored, you know, things that are actually probably much more directly evolved and innate. Um, mm -hmm. And we, people often describe those as basic needs. Right? Um, and those things are goals that just about everybody has, but potentially to different degrees. And so it's worth, you know, let's say that you get somebody who comes in and they're having, you know, emotional problems, they're depressed, they can't figure out you know, how to make their lives work the way that they want them to. Uh, and they tell you, like, you know, one of the things that I've figured out in life is that I just, I, I really don't need other people, right? I don't need, I don't need close relationships. I just need to be self-contained and to get my own life organized. Uh, and that's really, you know, that's all I care about. I don't care about other people. Um, if you are a clinician, uh, you are trained to be suspicious of that kind of a statement, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and fundamentally, from an evolutionary perspective, the reason that you're trained to be suspicious of that is that a need for attachment and affiliation with other people uh, appears to be a, an evolved basic need that just about everybody has. You know, at least in, uh, in infancy and childhood, it is almost inevitable that you're going to need that kind of connection to other people. Right. Uh, now, uh, where, my, where my theoretical approach diverges a bit from uh, people like, you know, the self-determination theory and people who really focus on these basic needs is that uh, they're usually inclined to say that, well, everybody has to have uh, these needs fulfilled. Uh, whereas I would say that, well, for an adult, it's actually important to think about uh, personality variation. You know, surprise, surprise. It's important to think about personality variation, even in something like a basic need. Because there are people, you know, there are these people who live as hermits in the woods for 20 years and they never see anyone and that's the way they want it and they seem to be functioning just fine that way. Uh, and for them, I would say, okay, you know, like, 
it really does seem that you don't need affiliation, you don't need connection to other people in order to be able to pursue your goals and meet your needs in life. Uh, you've got yourself figured out. You're a very unusual person. You have a very low level of this basic need. You know, once you're an adult, fine. You know, you do you. I'm see. The typical categorical diagnostic system would say, well, that person is a, has schizoid personality disorder, right? And the way they deal with their schizoid personality disorder is they went and lived in the woods. I say, no, they don't have a disorder. There's no disorder at all, right? They have an unusual personality and they've got a system uh, of, you know, the way they've adapted to their lives that is working well for them. So that's fine. That's a, that's a healthy person with an unusual personality. Uh, but you know, but there's a good reason why we are suspicious of the average person who comes into the clinic and says, like, I don't need people, because most people do need people, at least to some degree. Most people are not the kind of person who would be uh, happy and healthy living as a hermit in the woods. And so it's important for diagnosis in this cybernetic perspective to take into account the idea that people do not always have a clear understanding of their own goals, especially when we get to these goals that are relatively low level uh, yeah, fairly innate basic needs. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you now about uh, some of the relationship that we know of, of course, between the big five personality traits and psychopathology. Of course, last time we had a very long conversation about just that, about the big five personality traits, the aspects and all of that, and basically how they are organized, uh, the, their structure. So, uh, I mean, uh, as far as I understand it, of course, trait neuroticism is very much correlated with all sorts of mental issues. I mean, it's, it's correlated with depression, anxiety, and other, um, I mean, things that we classify as mental disorders. But, uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I mean, this, this is just something that I thought about a while ago because it just came to my mind. I mean, when it comes to the other traits, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, uh, agreeableness, is it really the case that uh, none of them can contribute to psychopathology in any way whatsoever. Because I mean, th this might not make sense, and no, please correct no, me if I'm wrong. Uh, because because I, I was just thinking about very simple examples. So let's say that someone is very extroverted, and for some reason, due to their circumstances, they uh, can't really live in a place where they can interact with lots of other people. For example, they can't go out a lot. So let's say just during the COVID pandemic, for example, and in lockdown and all of that. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if we could say that the trait itself is contributing to psychopathology, but basically, I mean, it could be that uh, that person would be feeling worse, would get depressed and so on because, uh, I mean, she basically cannot behave according to those psychological predispositions that she has, and the same would probably apply to someone who is very high or low in openness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and all of that. So, uh, I mean, does this make sense? or? Yes, it absolutely makes sense, and there's actually research that shows that the people who had the greatest uh, decrease in uh, mental health and well-being during the you know uh, real heavy lockdown period of the pandemic 
were people who are higher in extroversion and openness, right? So those are precisely the people who are more exploratory, who want to be out doing things. And so, yes, they suffered because of this environment that they were put in. Um, and you know, so that could potentially have led to various mental health problems. Um, so, uh, so there is certainly that way in which it's a risk, right? It's a, these personality profiles provide risk that can be manifest in particular environments. Uh, but there's also a, a much more basic way in which these different personality traits, be, in addition to neuroticism, are risks for mental health problems. So okay. if we go back to, to the uh, high top model, then uh, there are these, uh, well, there are six spectra, and one of the sixth one is uh, somatic problems, somaticizing problems, right? So uh, there's a whole class of problems in which people ha have concerns and experiences relating to their body where there's no obvious uh, physical dysfunction, but uh, they nonetheless have these, uh, these feelings and worries and concerns about their physical uh, well-being and body. Yeah. Uh, and that is that's sort of the most preliminary of the spectra within high top. Um, and if you essentially go up a level of the of the hierarchy, it will collapse with the internalizing spectrum. But uh, at any rate, at this point, it's generally still separated. But then there are these five other spectra, and those five spectra actually correspond uh, very well to the big five. A little bit of a complication for openness, which I'll get to. But uh, for the others, there's there's evidence that they're basically the same dimension, right? So uh, neuroticism corresponds to the internalizing dimension, and there's several good studies showing that it's almost impossible to distinguish this general tendency toward neuroticism from the general risk factor for uh, mood disorders, anxiety, depression, uh, those kinds of things, right? So yeah, so that's what you were talking about. There's that very clear link there. Um, but then the other dimensions also have these same parallels. So uh, conscientiousness is associated to a dimension of disinhibition uh, that uh, relates to the tendency to have problems with impulsivity, uh, uh, to, to drug use. Um, basically, uh, you know, anything that involves impulsivity, and impulsivity is the second most common symptom that's listed in the DSM after emotional distress. So this is obviously something you know, that's quite pervasive in mental health problems, is people's difficulty in self-regulating and not getting distracted and uh, not acting on impulse. So, uh, so conscientiousness is very clearly related to that. Interestingly, there's also uh, problems associated with high conscientiousness. Uh, so compulsivity or the tendency toward uh, you know, compulsive problems, uh, rigid perfectionism that doesn't let people finish things because they're so detail-oriented and they can't let anything go until they feel like it's totally perfect. Um, that's a, those are mental health problems that are associated with high levels of conscientiousness. Um, for agreeableness, the opposite is antagonism. There's this antagonistic externalizing spectrum within high top that reflects basically people's inability to uh, to get along with other people, right? To yeah. engage in aggressive behavior, uh, but also just to be unable to to empathize with other people, to be callous, to have uh, just a difficult time uh, getting along harmoniously with other people. Uh, in the that, extreme case, it could correlate with psychopathy, or, or no? Yes, or, absolutely. So, yeah. a psycho well, you know, psychopathy is another one of these things. It's 
sometimes considered to be a category like all these other categories it doesn't really exist there's not one group of people in the world who are psychopaths and everybody else is not it just doesn't work that way but if we think about what are described as psychopathic traits um you know there's there's disagreement among researchers about exactly what those are but the core really seems to be this degree of callousness right this inability to uh to care about other people um and willingness to exploit them, difficulty in feeling, you know, any kind of negative emotion around hurting other people. Yep. And so, yeah, so in the extreme, that would be associated with a lot of the behaviors and characteristics that get described as psychopathy. Um, also narcissism, right? The sense that I deserve more than other people deserve, the sense of entitlement, uh, the sense that, you know, what the only thing that really matters is that I get what I want, uh, willingness to you know exploit other people and use them in various ways even if it's not fully conscious right and not everybody who's a narcissist realizes that they're exploiting other people psychopaths tend to realize they're exploiting other people and you know be quite happy about that right? it's like that's what you, you know of course I would do that to get what I want uh, people who would uh, be described more usually as narcissists uh, often have this sense that you know of course I'm treating other people well other people you know need to treat me uh, with uh, adequate with the respect that I deserve, let's say, or to give me everything that I'm entitled to, um, that's so, also, that, so that also you falls think, within the antagonism spectrum. Yeah, uh, sorry to interrupt. Do you think that then low, very low levels of agreeableness could correlate with the dark triad uh, traits? Yeah. So the dark triad traits are facets of agreeableness. There's okay. no, I mean, there's no other way to say that they are okay. facets of agreeableness. Uh, so, like, it's a part, you know, we probably talked about this in our previous podcast, but uh, the big five are not supposed to be, like, the only components of personality. Mm -hmm. What they are is the major dimensions of covariation among all more specific personality traits. Yeah. So the dark triad traits, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, narcissism, those are more specific traits, but those are very strongly related to each other and they are part of agreeableness. Right? If you put them into a big factor analysis with all different measures of personality, uh, they're some of the best indicators of this general agreeableness dimension. Right? Okay. So what that tells us is that there's a general tendency for people to be cooperative and altruistic versus you know, belligerent and exploitative, uh, and that's agreeableness. But then we can break that down into more specific ways that people can be, you know, cooperative versus exploitative. And that's when you get to distinctions like, oh, this person's more Machiavellian, right? That's referring more to being uh, exploitative and dishonest. And uh, this person's more psychopathic. And that's referring more to being, you know, callous and unemotional and having no emotional connection to other people. And uh, this person's more narcissistic. And that's more associated with a sense of, you know, of entitlement and need for admiration. Um, and right, so these are all just facets of agreeableness within the big five. Mm -hmm. And do we know if there's any relationship at all between psychopathology and cognitive ability? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is. Um, so um, cognitive ability or IQ is a, uh, a, a protective factor against almost all forms of psychopathology. Um, I mean, it's not it's not as you know, it's not in a particularly strong association. It's not as strong as any of these associations with the big five that I'm talking about. Um, but in general, having higher intelligence is associated with lower risk for most mental health problems. Uh, one possible exception is mania. Uh, so things that get diagnosed as uh, bipolar disorder, for example. 
Uh, if you have, uh, there's some evidence and some large uh, samples, you know, there are these great uh, Scandinavian samples that are these large nationally representative samples. Some nice evidence from that one, I remember one study from the UK suggesting that if you have essentially pure, uh, pure bipolar, right, you don't qualify for any other diagnoses. So in the uh, high top framework, this would mean that you have normal levels of all of your, of all these symptom dimensions or trait dimensions, um, but you have elevated levels of mania, um, then uh, that's actually associated often with normal or even potentially uh, higher intelligence. But in, you know, so there's this interesting finding that uh, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia are extremely strongly related genetically, like the risk for psychotic problems, uh, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, this is this whole idea of transdiagnostic approaches, which is now getting translated into the dimensional approach, which is that uh, the risk for psychotic problems is a risk for mania and also a risk for what gets diagnosed as schizophrenia, because both of those involve psychotic tendencies. People with severe mania often have delus uh, you know, delusions and sometimes even hallucinations. So uh, it's, all, it's the same underlying genetic risk, basically, or very similar. Uh, but uh, intelligence really distinguishes those two diagnoses. So people have described bipolar as smart schizophrenia, right? And, you know, of course, remembering that all of these categorical diagnoses are essentially fictions that we should be getting rid of in, in science and medicine. But, you know, like there is something to that idea, right? That because it's a similar underlying profile, but if you're more intelligent, you're more likely to end up with a diagnosis of bipolar and having your problems be with, uh, with mania. Whereas if you are, uh, yeah, let's say, a, a, low in intelligence, then that's an additional contributing risk factor for the kinds of problems that get diagnosed as schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, this is just a, a side comment, let's say, but perhaps uh, some of these approaches, some of these reframing of the way we think about the relationship between, psycho, uh, first of all, how we think about psychopathology and then how we think about the relationship between traits and symptoms and psychopathology might also help us perhaps reframe a little bit the way we think about certain uh, anecdotes and anecdotal evidence, particularly when it comes to the way certain uh, very famous genius people tended to behave or the ones that are still alive behave because it's very common for people to just uh, attribute certain uh, psychopatho uh, psychopathologies or mental disorders to them just because they seem uh, out of the ordinary in terms of their behavior, right? right. Yeah, uh, right. So, of course, you know, that's, that gets back to this idea of statistical deviance and that, um, you know, some theories, many medical systems and often people's intuition prompts them to think that if you see somebody who's abnormal, you know, in the sense yeah. of just being unusual, right, who's got an unusual personality, that there must be something wrong with them, right? And so I think, of course, that contributes. If you've got, you've got somebody who's uh, really, uh, you know, extremely creative and brilliant and obviously thinking in unusual ways, well, then uh, partly there's this sense that, okay, well, they must be, you know, they must be a little crazy because they're so weird as well as, you know, being brilliant. Um, but I think there's actually a little bit more to it than that. Um, so, you know, we've only, we've, we got through three of the big five and we still need to do extroversion and openness. So this would be a good place to do openness, right? Because okay. uh, a lot of my work has focused on this uh, distinction between openness and intellect. 
And mm -hmm. so uh, there's this old debate in personality psychology about this factor of personality. Should we call it intellect or should we call it openness to experience? Uh, well, it turns out you actually need both of those concepts to describe that whole big five dimension. Uh, and if you factor analyze the facets within that dimension, you actually get two sub-factors, one of which looks like openness to experience and one of which looks like intellect. Um, and so the intellect one is about you know, your, your perceptions of intelligence, uh, to some extent your actual intelligence, uh, and your intellectual engagement, your interest in intellectual issues and in abstract ideas and philosophical thinking, et cetera. Um, and then the other one, the openness part, is about your interest in perceptual information and uh, patterns in experience and sensory experience and in appreciating and producing art and in being prone to fantasy and imagination. Um, and that, that would be interest in aesthetics, right? Interest in aesthetics, yeah, that's a big part of it, right? But it's also fantasy proneness. Um, and it's also something that we can call apophenia, which is a term for seeing patterns that don't really exist. Um, and apophenia is a term that was created in the context of explaining symptoms of schizophrenia and psychosis. Right? This idea that uh, people get this sense of, uh, of the meaningfulness of experience in ways that is essentially inappropriate. It's like they see a pattern here and they interpret it even though they shouldn't. Uh, but, you know, just along this line of dimensionality, of course, this happens to everyone, right? You see, a, you see an animal in the clouds, you know, or, you know, you see faces in some tree bark, or, uh, you know, you, a, a fan is running and it sounds like people having a conversation, uh, or you're in a crowd and you are convinced somebody's calling your name, but then you realize, oh, no, I just, you know, made that up. All of those are kind of everyday apophenia. Um, but of course, when it gets severe, it gets to the level of these strong hallucinations and delusions and really perceiving patterns and having trouble uh, distinguishing patterns that exist from patterns that don't exist. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the interesting thing. So intellect and openness are closely enough related that they're part of this one big five personality dimension. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, they also have a lot of different uh, associations if you break them down and separate them into intellect and openness, right? So, yep. you know, they're both associated with curiosity, they're both associated with, uh, with creativity, they're both associated with innovation, uh, but uh, many of those things in kind of different ways. So, uh, higher levels of intellect tends to be associated with lower risk for various kinds of mental health problems. Higher levels of openness tend to be associated with greater risk, especially for psychotic type of problems. Um, but also just like even the correlation with neuroticism, like intellect is negatively correlated with neuroticism, openness is positively correlated with neuroticism. So this kind of exploration and engagement with abstract information uh, tends to, you know, that's associated with intelligence, tend to be protective for people. The kind of uh, curiosity and engagement with sensory and perceptual patterns uh, tends to be risky for people. And it's, you know, it's a very interesting question as to why there would be that distinction and what that means. Uh, but in terms of your question about people who are perceived as, you know, this kind of mad genius stereotype, uh, I think that the reason that that happens is that when you have people who are higher in intelligence and intellect, they are also on average going to be higher on openness as well. So they're going to be more prone okay. to this kind of ability to think outside the box, to perceive weird patterns, to maybe have some weird ideas. Now, if they're smart enough, 
then they're good at sorting out which one of those unusual perceptions is actually potentially a, a new insight and a creative innovation, as opposed to just some kind of uh, you know kooky idea that uh, would lead you into like conspiracy theories or something, right? Uh, but you know you don't always you don't always get it right, and so brilliant people may still have some kooky ideas. Now it's also important to notice that there are uh, people who are high in intellect but low in openness, right? And they tend to be uh, very smart, but maybe a bit less creative, but certainly less prone to weird ideas. They tend to be very concrete. You know, this is kind of the engineer type, right? Can be brilliant with systems, can even be very innovative in creating new things, but has zero interest in, you know, the art or aesthetics of, uh, of the products that they're creating uh, and zero interest in, you know, just doesn't engage that much with sensory patterns. They're all about abstract patterns. Uh, or you can have people who are extremely high in openness and low in intellect, and you know they might be brilliant artists and extremely you know successful creative people, uh, but they also might be prone to like weird ideas and new age nonsense and conspiracy theories or whatever. And you know I think it's easy to see both of those types of people uh, if you look out there into you know the world of people who are famous because they're very creative and successful or very productive and innovative. Um, so you see the people who have both, but then you also see the people who have one or the other. Mm -hmm. And so, so yeah. one of the, just to finish up that mm -hmm. about openness, one of the spectra from high top is referred to as thought disorders. Uh, sometimes it's also referred to as psychoticism, right? Cause it's about a risk for psychotic problems. Um, and that is associated with high openness but low intellect. So that's the one place where you really see an important difference uh, between the taxonomy of psychopathology and the taxonomy of normal personality. So that in normal personality, we focus on openness and intellect and the way they go together into this one big five dimension. In psychopathology, we, split, we focus on the ways in which openness is a risk, uh, but, uh, but intellect is protective. Mm -hmm. And also, since you mentioned there, uh, for example, conspiracy theories and certain silly things that even uh, highly intellectual people sometimes believe in, I mean, it's also, perhaps we also have a bad understanding or some misunderstanding about how those things work, because, I mean, it's not only that even if you're someone who has a high IQ and believes in or even develops yourself some conspiracy theories, it, it's, not, it's not only the case that we do not have any sort of uh, cognitive mechanism apart from the cultural tools that we get through science, for example, to properly distinguish or evaluate something as uh, empirically true or, empir or empirically untrue. I mean, we have to acquire all of those cognitive tools to do it properly, but also in many kinds of conspiracy theories, you really have to have high IQ to process all of the information that <laughs> right, goes around. Right. It can be worse, right? It can be worse to be intelligence because then you can actually understand all these pieces that yeah. are linked together into the conspiracy, right? There's, you know, there's some great research on this kind of thing. This is a little off topic, but that's okay. Um, you know, basically showing that people with uh, higher intelligence are actually more, better at rationalizing, uh, you know, their, their positions and you, you provide them evidence against, you know, they have some kind of like sociopolitical value or something, you know, some position on how things should be. And then you provide them evidence against it. And uh, smarter people are actually better at rationalizing their uh, their motivated cognition, right? Motivated cognition, that's really the core 
problem here. That's the core issue. Um, there's this, uh, uh, I don't know who came up with this saying, but that motivated cognition is a heck of a drug. And so even smart people, if they want to believe th something, they may actually be even better at figuring out ways to believe it and coming up with uh, reasoning and evidence that even if it's bogus, even if it doesn't hold up to scrutiny, they're not going to see that because they're motivated to believe it and they're capable of putting all these pieces together to make it work in their minds. Um, so yeah, there's no immunity from conspiracy theories just because you're intelligent. Um, but um, but it helps, right? Because uh, it, it, it particularly helps if you are intelligent and low in openness. You know, normally I'm a, I'm a big fan of openness, right? I, I like high openness people. I'm high in openness myself. Uh, but you know, if you want to avoid conspiracy conspiracy thinking, it helps to be high in intelligence but low in openness. <laughs> right. So okay. So we're nearing the end of our conversation. I would like to get into one final big topic, I guess. So uh, I would before, like before we do that, Ricardo, should we uh, should we talk about extroversion? Because that's the only. Oh, one. oh yeah. No, sorry, sorry. I almost it's, missed that. Sorry. It's all right. It's the only spectrum we haven't done. So I think we might as well be, you know, for the sake of completeness, right? Uh, so uh, yeah. uh, extroversion in high top is actually uh, the in the other direction. So it's focused more on low openness and it's labeled detachment. Mm -hmm. uh, and okay. the idea is basically that there are some people uh, who are so uh, detached from other people, um, but also even potentially detached from engagement with, you know, with various goals. They're, they're just, they have very low motivation uh, and uh, that is a risk that presents problems for them that, you know, corresponds to various symptoms of psychopathology, uh, like mm -hmm. anhedonia or difficulty in experiencing pleasure, um, amotivation, um, various kinds of you know, social difficulties, social withdrawal. Um, yeah, loneliness is related to that, of course. Um, and so you know, what, what do you do with these people? Well, they're, you know, they're low in detachment. Uh, is one of the least studied, I would say, uh, areas of psychopathology. Sorry, they're high in detachment. One of the least studies er studied areas of psychopathology. Uh, it's most prominent as symptoms in certain personality disorders, like schizoid personality disorder is kind of the classic. That's just about basically like super, super low extroversion, high detachment. It's funny because when that system was being created, when these labels were being created, they were originally referring to it as uh, introversion because that's the traditional label for the opposite of extroversion. Uh, but the Jungians complained so much about this that they had to come up with a new label, right? Because the Jungians all said, you can't say introversion is a mental disorder. You know, right? that's, that's ridiculous. Um, and, you know, and of course, as you know from earlier in our conversation, I would agree with that, right? You can't say that introversion is a mental disorder, even if it's very extreme introversion, unless it's interfering with the person's life and their ability to pursue their goals effectively. It's not a mental disorder. But anyway, so there was this complaint, and then they said, okay, well, uh, how about detachment? And I actually think detachment is a better label than introversion because it really cuts to the core of what. Uh, low extroversion is all about, right? It's not like, it's not about turning inward and being more interested in your inner life the way that Jung thought, um, because that's openness, right? People who are high in openness are the ones who are creative and prone to fantasy and imagination and creativity. Uh, so, you know, what, what Jung thought of as introversion is really more like openness plus low extroversion. 
Um, but what we know extroversion is from a measurement perspective and as the opposite, the opposite of extroversion is really something more like detachment. It's about not experiencing much excitement, much engagement, much positive emotion, uh, and often being, you know, having difficulty uh, having the energy or desire to connect with other people. Uh, so, you know, all these problems with like low positive emotion, that's associated with depression, it's associated with risk. Um, but there is also a risk associated with high extroversion, and especially the assertiveness component of extroversion is associated with risk uh, for problems associated with excitement seeking or sensation seeking. You know, and some of that is just physical risk taking, you know, like if one of my favorite old studies is people went to an emergency room and got people who are after all just sitting around waiting for longer than they want to be uh, to fill out personality questionnaires. Uh, and people in the emergency room tend to be higher in extroversion uh, than the normal population average. Uh, you know, so extroverts are prone to more car accidents. You know, so there are these physical risks, but then there are also other kinds of risk taking, like various kinds of externalizing problems, like uh, you know, risks for uh, for problematic drug use and impulsive problems are also associated with the, especially the assertiveness component uh, of extroversion. So. You know, all of these different personality dimensions basically have an exactly corresponding set of risks for uh, psychopathology. And that's a clue as to the way that we should be thinking about psychopathology, right? Is like, you're not mentally ill just because you have a weird symptom profile, because that's the same as having a weird personality profile, as long as it's persistent over time. Uh, you're only uh, mentally ill if whatever that profile is, is really severely interfering with your ability to live and pursue your goals. Right. So, getting into our last topic then. So, uh, I would like to talk with you more about, uh, or to ask you more about, uh, how to integrate personality psychology with neuroscience when it comes mm. to understanding personality traits. And we've already talked here and uh, last time a little bit about cybernetics. Uh, but in your work, in some of your more recent work, you also address uh, the free energy principle and active inference in sort of yes. a, a framework that includes both. So could you tell us about that, uh, perhaps how they relate to cybernetics, and then mm -hmm. perhaps we can get into the uh, personality traits? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, right, so there's the, there's the question of the connection to neuroscience, and then there's the question of the connection to cybernetics, and those things yeah. actually are uh, very nicely related. You know, and I guess the first thing I should do just sort of as a segue is to say, so we talked earlier about the way in which our, our theoretical perspective is that we should not consider psychopathology as brain disease, uh, right? So you can have a, a normal, you can have a normally working brain, but that has, uh, learned essentially a bunch of maladaptive patterns um, and therefore leads you into dysfunction and mental illness. Um, you can also have an unusually working brain, but that also doesn't mean you have a mental illness as long as you are able to pursue your goals effectively and develop strategies to deal with your own, you know, unusualness. Um, but you know, the funny thing is that, so I tell people like, you know, it's not brain disease, but then they notice that I do all this research on understanding the neural correlates of personality and the neural correlates of psychopathology. So it's like, well, you know, how do you reconcile those? Well, I think of all these, this neural patterns as, uh, you know, risk factors. And so it's really important to understand the underlying mechanisms and risks 
that actually leads people to end up often with dysfunction. So I think that you know on the surface it might seem contradictory, but it's really not. Uh, and so uh, you know the brain is a cybernetic system, and what that means is that it evolved to allow us to pursue our goals effectively. Right? All organisms need to pursue the goals that will allow them to survive and reproduce, or they wouldn't be here. That's evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a cybernetic system basically is just a way of describing a system that has a uh, some kind of target range of some variable that's physically controlled. You know, it, it, this it's not necessarily, it would be far too simplistic to think that it was like a, a single neuron or a single neural structure. Uh, you know, in some cases there may be relatively simple neuro circuits that constitute goals like relating to, I don't know, the regulation of thirst, for example, some in these very basic processes for survival. Um, but many of our goals are gonna be represented as kind of, you know, dis dispersed representations across large neural networks, whatever. But somehow they're actually represented there in the brain. Um, and then there has to be a process by which the brain can compare uh, that goal to the current state of the organism and then engage in certain kinds of actions in order to pursue that goal effectively. Okay, so that's the cybernetic perspective. That is very consistent with this larger paradigm, let's call it the predictive processing or predictive coding paradigm that has emerged over the last like 20 or 30 years uh, in psychology and neuroscience. And at this point, over the last 10 years, I would say has really consolidated to be the dominant paradigm uh, for that whole scientific endeavor. And the basic idea there is that what the brain does is attempt to predict its inputs. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, this leads to a lot of fascinating things we could talk about, about uh, consciousness and perception, right? Like, so uh, your consciousness of the world is not a direct uh, recognition of the structure of the physical world that's out there. It is actually uh, no different from a hallucination, except for the fact that it happens to be reasonably accurate, right? <laughs> so uh, you have a model of the world that you experience consciously that is not a direct perception of the physical world out there. Uh, what it is is actually a prediction about what your eyes and ears and all of your senses are going to be registering. And what you consciously experience isn't the input, it's the prediction. Uh, so in other yeah, words, there, there are even these very interesting studies where people track uh, the movement of the eyes and where people are looking at. And uh, even though we think or think that we are perceiving everything around us up to 180 degrees or something like that we are not we are just focusing on one right. single point in space and basically inferring the rest right right that's absolutely true right so uh, a lot of things about consciousness are illusory um right. and some of those you can be trained to to recognize right like a lot of the uh, buddhist meditative training uh, comes down to essentially being more accurate in understanding your own consciousness. Uh, and so, yeah, in fact, we only see detail in a very narrow range of our visual field. All the rest is a blur. You can't actually identify stuff in it. You feel like it's continuous, right? Because you get this kind of low resolution surround. Um, but, you know, you often miss things there. And I, I had this experience just uh, just last year that was such a perfect illustration of this. Um, I was on a I was on sabbatical and living in Germany for three months and I was on a fellowship and uh, living in a relatively small uh, apartment. Um, so you know it's a pretty it's a pretty small space. Uh, if I'm in there for five minutes, I'm going to see everything that's there. There's a little kitchen corner and one and then you know there's just not a lot there. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, my wife was staying with me and uh, she had gotten some flowers and put them in a in a vase on the 
kitchen table, which is the only place to eat, basically, uh, which is also right next to the door to the apartment. And it was a, a big bunch of flowers. Uh, and I, I came in and uh, was talking to her and, you know, putting stuff down and just, and like 10 minutes went by. And all of a sudden I noticed that there was this huge bunch of flowers. <laughs> wow. Uh, because obviously, literally, I had already seen it. Right? It was in my visual field many times, um, but I wasn't paying attention to it, and so I didn't consciously see it. Right, so you know you can, it's that's just like you know that's the classic uh, gorilla study, right? The invisible mm -hmm. gorilla, right? Like you can, if you're paying attention to what the white team is doing, the people wearing white shirts, and they're passing a basketball, and a gorilla can walk through the basketball game, and you don't see it consciously, right? So this is. Uh, you know, that's just a good demonstration of the fact that what you see is your prediction and what you predict is what you're paying attention to. And what you're paying attention to is what is relevant to your goals most of the time, right? We can, mm -hmm. we can sometimes have a goal of exploration where it's just like, oh, I just want to look around and see everything, right? And then we have a very different kind of attention. We have this diffuse attention. And then you're if you're doing that, you're never going to miss the, the bouquet of flowers. Yeah. But we're not usually doing that, right? It's like exploration is a relatively rare goal state. More often, yeah. we're trying to do certain more specific, concrete things, uh, and those are also goal states. Um, and so, uh, you mentioned the free energy principle and active inference. So that is one particularly sort of powerful and influential way of modeling and a sort of a mathematical framework for this idea of predictive coding, right? And that what what the brain does is that it creates a prediction, and it tries to minimize the difference between the prediction and the perceptual inputs. Uh, and so as a starting point, that's great for understanding how you build a perceptual model of the world, right? It's like, okay, well, all the time what I'm trying to do is uh, predict what I'm going to see and what I'm going to hear. And then uh, inputs come in from my ears, from my eyes. Uh, so I've got these top-down predictions in the brain and these bottom-up uh, sensory signals. The ones that match just essentially get canceled out. Don't have to think about those. The ones that don't match to whatever degree go higher up the processing chain in the brain. Uh, and then the brain uses a bunch of energy to like figure those out and make a new prediction, adjust its predictions until basically all the input is canceled out by successful predictions. Uh, and that determines you know, how we're able to build these complex models of the world and perceive them. Uh, the one thing that that doesn't get at very clearly is what are goals? Right? And so that's where the active inference part comes in. Right? So the free energy principle is basically just this idea that we're trying to minimize free energy, which you can think of as minimizing uh, this degree of surprise or mismatch uh, between our predictions and our inputs. Uh, active inference was an addition to that theory that basically allowed it to encompass cybernetics. And what it says is that a goal is a special kind of prediction. Um, because it's a prediction where the organism then behaves in certain ways to make the prediction come true, right? So what is a goal? Well, a goal is, the, is a state of the world that I would like to see. It's what I desire to experience in the world. So then I'm going to act in various ways so that that prediction comes true. And, and so once that prediction comes true, if there's a match, all the input is canceled out, and uh, voila, then I've reached my goals. And so, you know, really... If we look at this kind of historical background, the only difference that I see between uh, cybernetics and something like the active, or active inference principle uh, and the predictive processing coding, uh, predictive processing paradigm, coding paradigm, whatever, uh, is that 
one of them starts with perception and then eventually says, oh yeah, we also need to deal with goals. The other one starts with goals and says, okay, yeah, then we need to deal with perception. Right? They're really just talking about the same thing starting from two different angles. Um, and uh, you know, I like cybernetics because from an evolutionary perspective, the goal comes first, right? You don't need a, a very simple organism might monitor something very simple about its environment in a very simple feedback loop. Uh, so the goal is much more obvious than any, there's no model of the environment beyond just like, okay, when the concentration of this molecule goes up, it registers on this particular sensor on the surface of the, you know, bacterium or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, evolutionary speaking, in some sense, the goals are primary. Uh, but when you get to any kind of complex organism, you obviously, you have to have a model of the, of the world. You have to have a model of the variables that the organism is trying to control, just as you have to have a set of goals for those variables, and then those things have to be compared, right? So you always need both sides of the equation. You need the goals and you need the sensors. And then you need, you know, there needs to be a feedback process that essentially compares those and tries to align them. Um, mm -hmm. And that is, you know, sort of the essence of cybernetics. And it's also the essence of uh, the predictive processing paradigm that's now really driving neuroscience and the way that people are trying to organize our understanding of what's going on in the brain uh, for, at the neural level. Uh, and so, how would all of that apply to an understanding of how personality traits uh, arise, basically? So, um, my cybernetic theory, and I've got a personality theory that is, you know, so the, the cybernetic dysfunction theory of psychopathology is basically an offshoot of my cybernetic big five theory that started out as a theory of uh, personality. Um, also, just more recently, I have extended it to be a theory of well-being as well, cybernetic value fulfillment theory. Uh, but uh, so it all goes back to this idea that uh, personality traits are uh, essentially patterns of, uh, of behavior and experience uh, that can be useful that vary uh, in all uh, human cultures and all human environments across evolutionary time. Um, and the reason that they're in all human populations is that they represent variation in these basic cybernetic mechanisms. Right? So uh, as a cybernetic system, it has to be the case that we are energized and interested in putting energy into pursuing our goals. And so that's what the reward system is doing fundamentally. It's saying it is worth doing this behavior because it will uh, help get you toward one of your goals. In cybernetics, a reward is just either a cue that you're moving toward a goal or the actual attainment of a goal. Um, and so, you know, every human being has a reward system. We know a lot about the way the reward system functions in the brain. Uh, we know that variation in the functioning of that reward system is predicted by extroversion. Uh, it makes sense to think that extroversion fundamentally reflects variation in the sensitivity of the reward system. And so personality traits are variation in these basic cybernetic parameters. You have to have uh, something, you have to have a system that motivates you to pursue the goal. You have to have a system that keeps track of how much of a mismatch there is between where you are and where you want to be. And that's where neuroticism comes in fundamentally because that's your error detection, right? How much of a, how much of a mismatch between the model and the input does there have to be before you freak out and try to fix it, right? <laughs> So for somebody who's low in neuroticism, they can tolerate, you know, some errors. 
It's like, okay, well, that doesn't quite match, but it's probably good enough. For somebody who's high in neuroticism, even the smallest mismatch between what they expect or what they want and what they're perceiving is uh, triggers this alarm system, right? That says, oh, no, I don't like it. It's, uh, I, it's wrong, it's frightening, it's bad, gotta fix it. Right? So that dissatisfaction is basically a dissatisfaction or fear, it's coming from a sensitive alarm system. Mm -hmm. uh, so each one of the big five can be mapped onto uh, these parameters of the very basic mechanisms that allow human beings to pursue their goals and that are involved in essentially all goals, right? So, you know, certain goals are going to line up more with certain personality traits. Like if I want to go hang out at the bar and chat people up, then that's more related to extroversion. Uh, but the underlying mechanism always involves, uh, you know, the, the energizing of the goal, uh, the uh, figuring out how to stay on target with the goal and not getting distracted, you know, like, Maybe if I'm a conscientious extrovert, like I'm really good at going to the bar and talking to people when I want to. But if I'm a distractible, impulsive, low conscientious extrovert, it's like I start off to the bar and end up talking to somebody on the street and never get there. Right? I mean, that's <laughs> it's a funny example, right? Because we don't usually think of conscientiousness as going along with hanging out in bars. Uh, but, you know, it makes sense when you think about the fact that no matter what your goals are, uh, you have to engage all these systems in order to pursue them effectively. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's the fundamental way in which uh, I'm interested in mapping personality traits onto these psychological processes and mechanisms that seem to uh, produce the coherence among the various behaviors in the trait, and then saying, okay, well, what's the cybernetic function of those mechanisms? And then saying, okay, well, uh, how does the brain actually carry out those functions? And can we link those brain systems then uh, back to the functioning of those personality traits, and also since we're talking about psychopathology today, to the patterns of risk for mental health problems that go along with each of those different personality traits. So just one final question then. At this point in time, 2023, uh, how developed is the neuroscience of personality in terms of so uh, how good is our understanding of how the brain produces, if we could, if we could use that verb here, uh, personality traits? Uh, I mean, and, 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 and I mean, I, I'm not sure if you're more on the, uh, when it comes to personality traits, if you fall more on the localizationist side of the debate when it comes to uh, understanding how uh, traits operate in the brain or the more network side, let's yeah, say. Yeah, absolutely, but, the network side. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I was imagining that. But uh, I mean, how good is our understanding of it? Uh, at this point, I mean, not great for most traits. You know, and I think here it's useful to talk about uh, personality and psychopathology together again, because it turns out it's all just the study of individual differences, so they really naturally go together. And that's actually coming to the fore in clinical neuroscience, right? As we're moving from neuroscience studies that used to just like compare a bunch of people with depression to a bunch of people with no mental health problems, yeah. that doesn't actually get us very far. And so uh, we have learned a lot less than we would like from studying categorical diagnoses in terms of brain function. Um, but we're only really just getting started in terms of studying these dimensions of personality and dimensions of psychopathology in relation to brain function. But I'm hopeful that that will actually allow us to make greater progress. Uh, I recently published uh, an article with a number of colleagues who are also in, involved in personality neuroscience 
uh, in a journal called Personality Science, uh, and that is open access, so anybody can go find it on the web with no paywalls, anything like that. Um, and uh, basically there we are kind of reviewing the current state of the art in personality neuroscience, um, but we're also talking about the fact that personality neuroscience is really the neuroscience of individual differences, so that covers this dimensional approach to psychopathology as well. Um, and you know, I would have to say that there are not a lot of things that we know, but uh, we know some things about neuroticism uh, and internalizing problems, you know, anxiety, depression, threat sensitivity, uh, pretty clear evidence of a, a, a network involved in you know, detecting and responding to threat that centers on the amygdala and the, uh, the, the uh, bed nucleus of the stria terminalis to throw out incomprehensible jargon, right? This is part of the extended amygdala, but also parts of the uh, anterior cingulate cortex, the prefrontal cortex. So a whole network of regions that are basically the brain's uh, threat detection and response uh, vigilance system. Right? The amygdala is involved in processing reward information as well as threat, but it is kind of biased toward vigilance and vigilance is biased toward threat. So, um, you know, so we know some things about neuroticism and internalizing problems and how the brain does that. Uh, we know some things about extroversion and its link to dopamine and to the reward system. Um, you know, maybe not surprising that what we've learned the most about are these dimensions that are closely linked to uh, reward and punishment, because those are such basic psychological phenomena. We've studied them so extensively in uh, other species, you know, uh, rats and mice and pigeons and cats, uh, that we know a lot about those brain systems. And so it's been easier to uh, find the evidence and know where to look for the evidence to link them to uh, human dimensions of variation in personality and symptoms. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually know a fair amount about intelligence as well, and that's partly because I think intelligence is measured so well. Uh, so, you know, a real IQ tests, not something that you do like on the internet, but uh, something like the, the Wexler intelligence scale that has a whole range of different cognitive tests and you look at the uh, you know, average across them. Uh, that is uh, pretty, that is well established to be linked to a number of different aspects of brain function at this point, especially to functioning of a network centered around the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, uh, to uh, simply uh, brain size, um, to uh, patterns of white matter connectivity that allows communication among different parts of the brain. So uh, those three traits were what we focused on in that article, because those were the three where we felt like, here's where we actually have some really uh, good, solid evidence, and we actually know some things. Um, but, you know, other dimensions, other traits, uh, you know, there's, there's some evidence out there, but a lot of it is still pretty up in the air. Uh, my lab recently has been doing a lot of work on conscientiousness. Uh, we just published a paper showing across three different pretty large samples, actually one of them with a thousand people, so quite large, uh, associations between conscious, conscientiousness uh, and connectivity within a particular brain network that seems to be crucial for basically uh, prioritizing goals and prior, you know, directing attention uh, toward things that are relevant toward our goals and away from distractions and basically sort of keeping track of the motivational salience or importance of things relative to our goals. Uh, so you know, I think that makes a lot of sense conceptually. Uh, only a couple of studies on this now coming out of my lab. We'll see if that actually holds up in future. But, you know, I think we're, we're really just at the beginning of this project. Uh, and it's going, to, it's going to accelerate as it spreads out of, you know, orientation to personality 
and becomes more and more influential in the clinical world because there's so much more money for clinical research than there is for personality research. And, you know, fair enough, I get it, right? It's like we want to help people with their problems. The clinical world is where we want to devote attention and funds. Great. Um, but as more funds are devoted to more uh, dimensional studies of psychopathology in large samples, uh, I think, you know, we'll start to make more progress on some of the other dimensions other than those ones that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Great. So uh, just before we go, would you like to mention where people can find you and your work on the Internet? Yes. Uh, search for my name on Google. You will find my uh, web page hosted at the University of Minnesota, my lab web page. Uh, most of my publications are available there. And uh, there's also a link to my personality test, the Big Five Aspect Scales, uh, that's free. And you can get uh, feedback and scores on your personality. Uh, so, yeah, for anything that you want to know about me, just, you know, Google my name. Great. So, Dr. De Young, it's been, uh, an, again, a great pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been a fun conversation. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please do not forget to like it, share, comment, and subscribe. And if you like more generally what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You, get, you have all of the links in the description of this interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perga Larsen, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windegger, Ruinacio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Triago Dunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrandt, John Linares, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tam Amel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Des Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavlo Stasevsky, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Simon Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortesus, Lalitska, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morten Eichland, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Georgius Theophanes, Chris Williamson, Peter Olozen, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amory Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilly Jr., Holt Erickburn, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Manuel Oliveira, Kimberly Johnson, and Benjamin Galbart. A special thanks to my producers, Cesar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, 
John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and All Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.